Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve Podcast. Here's your host. Welcome to the How We Solve Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today I'm joined by Marvin Liao. Marvin was formerly a partner of Venture Capital Fund, 500 Startups, running the SF-based accelerator program, as well as investing in C-stage startups. He's invested in uh, you know, digital media companies, enterprise SaaS, marketplaces, mobile, the list goes on and on. I don't even dare to uh, start digging into your resume <laughs> because you're just so, you have such a wealth of experience. First off, you know, let's just hear it from you. Can you give us a brief rundown on your background? Sure. Thanks for having me. And so I've been in here in Silicon Valley in San Francisco now 21 years. So I've had a bunch of different roles. Um, like I said, most recently was uh, an investor at 500 Startups. And so I was there for about six years and started the San Francisco office and invested through the accelerator program, the, the seed fund, probably close to 414 companies. So done a lot of stuff in the startup world. Prior to that, I took two years off just goofing around, angel investing boards and you know, mentoring a lot of startup accelerators. And then prior to that, I was an executive at Yahoo. So I was spent about 10 and a half years at Yahoo. And I ran a lot of like, I did a lot of the international expansion, ran a bunch of international business groups there. Um, and then prior to that, I spent two years at an e-commerce startup that like when I was there had raised, I think 15 million, raised another 15 million. So when I, you know, when I was laid off, like everybody in 2001, we had raised, I think, 30 million. But I went to look back or just sort of like in retrospect to go check Crunchbase. Like the over the lifetime of that company, um, it ended up being acquired by a, by another company, like you know, like many years after I left. They raised like 60 million dollars, like which is just like crazy to me. I'm just like, wow, like I remember raising, you know, I remember when I was there at the at the company, it was like 30 million. This was like holy crap, they raised like over 60 or $65 million from like, wow, that's a very different time. This is like 99, like I joined in 99, early 2000s, which is like, so it's, I, I've had I've had startup experience, I've had big tech company experience and had sort of like, you know, the, the VC sort of like accelerator experience. So I've kind of done a little bit of everything. So I, I consider myself like very, very lucky. I'm sort of like the, the Forrest Gump of uh, Silicon Valley. Mom always said, life's like a box of chocolates. <laughs> Let's jump straight into it. You know, what is the problem that um, we're looking to, to tackle today? You know, this comes up a lot, I think, with startups. And we chatted about this too. Like, it's not just startups, but also like personally, like you as a business person, right? Like Sean Lee.inc or Marvin Leal.inc of just like positioning, right? Like, what's your story, the positioning aspect? And so, as I mentioned to you, I, you know, now sort of like in my sort of like spare time and, and chill out time um, when I'm not studying and reading and stuff i'm i'm actually doing a lot of coaching of companies and, and one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is just like what's your story and how you're positioned in the market and so how i think about this is ultimately there's two different things right and so every company if you think about all companies i think they fit in sort of like two categories one category and i'm going to use this analogy of like you know red ocean versus blue ocean right and so if you're in a red ocean where it's like lots of competition um usually situation like that you're usually talking about like everyone sort of knows what the problem is everybody sort of knows like what the market is and how big the market is and and what you're doing right and then it's more of a question of like okay, like we get what you do, we get what the market is. Now it's actually more of a question of differentiation of just like, why are you different and like 
not slightly better, but like a hundred times better than sort of like the present competition. That's like for certain type of companies, right? So for example, like, um, like food delivery, right? Like, you know, there was a big food delivery boom, like maybe five, yeah, probably a four or five years ago. And where there's literally like, you know, the first company, I think that really, really sort of set that was like Sprig, right? Like, and so when Sprig set out, like, I think Sprig probably have a harder time where just like, you, you know, Sprig had to go in, it was a blue ocean, right? Where it's like, there's no, nobody's done this before. So they're the first one to kind of went in and said like, all right, we're going to do like food delivery, like our own restaurant, food delivery. And they had to go in like, they were in a blue ocean, no competition. So they had to define like, this is actually what the market is, right? Like, this is what the market is. This is what the competitive landscape is. And there's no competitors. So it's just like, there's no comparables. There's no benchmarking. So in some ways you're selling sort of like more of like, here's what the market looks like. And here's why we're, what we're doing and our approach is so different than what anybody else is doing to serve this customer base right now. And so that's sort of like more of like a blue ocean one. And so you're, you don't have to talk as much about comparables, right? Like your comparables are typically offline versus say in the red ocean situation where it's like, I understand what you do. Why are you like, you know, let, and let's talk about, you know, fast forward, like two years after Sprig raised money, like there are probably like 400 like food delivery companies and all different angles. Right. And so then it becomes a matter of just like, when you're talking, it's just like, okay, yes, here's what the market looks like. Here's what the competitive landscape is, but like, here's sort of like what we do that's different and unique and like 10 times or a hundred times better, right? Because this way you're not selling them on the market. You're actually selling people and talking about your story about like why you are like, you know, how you fit in that market, right? Where in sort of like the blue ocean one, where like, you don't even know what the market is. You don't even, you don't even have any comparables. And so the, that's what positioning does for you, right? Like, so for example, when you go, like we talk about categories and you go, and, and everyone should have this right answer. Just like, What's the number one sort of like best-selling sort of like soda? It's like, what comes to mind? Coca-Cola. Yeah, Coca-Cola, right? Bar not. What's the second best? Pepsi. And there's nobody else, right? Like then you have a whole bunch of these niche ones. Like maybe you go and look at like, okay, well, there's like Sprite, right? Like Sprite is like the clear soda. And you have like different categories where like they don't have as much. And I think they're owned by the same company, but it's just like, it's one of those things where like as in, in the consumer's mind and in the investor's mind, where it's like, you know, like, let's just say like, Food delivery, like there's probably like one company that comes to mind, right? Or like you think of a retail store, there's probably one company that comes to mind. Whatever category, like just sort of, this is why categories are very important. And so the red ocean versus blue ocean, I think is a very helpful framework to sort of like think about. And so there are some companies I invest in that are like blue oceans where like they can't even describe what they do. And so then I go, okay, who's your customer, right? Like, tell me about who your customer is. Tell me about what their problem is. And then you define, and then that's actually what they call like, you know, category development, right? So then you start, you define the category. And so it takes a lot longer, a lot harder versus sort of like selling into something where I'm like, oh, you're a competitor to Uber. Like I understand what Uber does. So like, it's just a very different, like how you position is very different. So the first step, if I'm hearing it correctly for positioning is to first understand whether you're in a red versus blue ocean environment. Yeah, it's sort of like a red ocean versus blue ocean. But even think about it where is the category known or is it unknown, right? And then once you realize you, let's say, let's take the blue ocean example. I guess how often is a startup in the blue ocean category and I, I, or environment? And I ask that because I feel like there may be some disillusionment sometimes from founders that they think their product is so unique that it is really in, in a blue ocean. Yeah, I, I would say that's pretty rare. I, I'm going to say probably in, in my time, 
maybe like about 20% of the companies I meet were like sort of like blue ocean where it's like, okay, I'm not sure what you like, in, like for, when they describe it, where I'm like, are you talking about this? Like, is it some new type of CRM system? And they're like, no, 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 no. And then they describe it and they're like, oh, okay, so, so something totally different. And then that's sort of how you get to sort of the truth, right? But for me, I actually think there's something about clarity where like if somebody comes in and they're very clear, where I'm like, look, here's sort of what you think this is. This is actually not this. Like we do this. And I think the best way to sort of understand sometimes is actually looking at, you know, like describing who the customer is and what the problem is. And that's ultimately how I think. So, you know, there's this great book, I think by, um, he was one of the first like CMOs of like, uh, of, uh, what's the name of the company? Like the company that started Gainsight, right? Like, like they started like customer success, right? Like if you think about customer success, that wasn't even a thing like seven or eight years ago. Um, but they developed it. We're like, okay, like customer success, like we do customer success. You're like, what the hell is customer success? Like, isn't that just like customer service? Like, no, 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 it's not like customer success. Like customer success is different than customer service. And so they had to, they built software that actually like really, like they built the software, but over time, like they built a category around it where like they brought in sort of like, it's almost like a movement, right? Like where it's just like, there's some people working on this thing. No, these people don't really have any definition, don't really fit in, but like, it's a real thing, right? And then especially with sort of like software becoming bigger and bigger, where like, well, actually you can, there's a lot of people that are great at selling, but the retention is terrible, right? And why is that? And so what, you know, customer success, like this is a real thing. And so I do think like now, like there's a category of customer success software. So once you figure out your customer, and what problem you're solving? What is the next step to understanding your positioning? Then the next thing you, you look at is sort of like, okay, like who's like, what are customers using or doing to solve that problem, right? So are they, I'll use one real example where I'm like, well, like for this type of like pseudo CRM issue, like they're kind of using like Airtable or like Google Sheets, right? As a hack that kind of gets them like 50, 60% there, but it's not, it's not built for them. And so like what, you know, like I look at it as like, what are the tools that they're using right now that like, that they're sort of like used in a way that isn't necessarily meant to be the way that is used for, um, but it's still kind of like, but they're so desperate, they're sort of like using it and and more than one folks are using it or like, it's not just like one customer doing that. There's like multiple potential customers like doing it this way, right? And it's like a real problem for them that's only partially solved. So basically, you know, really observing what your customers are doing now. Yeah, and, and, and what are the tools or hacks that they're using to sort of like solve this problem, right? And, and many times there maybe is none or tools that are like repurposed for other, you know, from other sectors or other things to sort of like repurposed to sort of use to fix whatever you're doing. Are there any more steps for identifying your, your position? Well, well, then what you have to do is just like, so, so that's, that's probably more of a, like I said, sort of like a category development, right? Because like nobody knows like this is a problem. Nobody knows that this is a sector. So then you have to go and figure out like, all right, like what do you call it? If the category is not clear, like how do you define that as a category of just like, and it's not like repurposing like ECRM or some other stupid thing like that. It's just like, no, like what is there some... So I'll give you another example, like, you know, big data, right? Like we never, you know, like prior to like 10, 12 years ago, like nobody really knew what big data was, but now it's a category, right? Or nobody knew sort of like machine learning, AI, machine learning, where like that's a category now, but that didn't exist or developers, like there's very specific things. Um, and so it's just like the big question comes down to sort of like if it's a unknown category or there's no category yet, like what do you call it and how do you define it in a way that's easy to understand and not some like, highly technical techno babble stuff what if the new category ends up encompassing different groups of customers 
I guess part of my question is rooted in how we think about marketing, right? And reaching the customer is that, I presume that ultimately is the, is the objective of understanding your position, right? And so that you can then target your customer. Yeah, but I think one of the things that in the beginning, though, and, and this is a very Silicon Valley thing, is just like you want to keep it as narrow as possible. Your customer is not like it, it could have the potential of being like hundreds of millions and billions of people. But in the beginning, it's always a very, very narrow subset of customers. And why is that? There's so much noise in the marketplace, right? And so, number one, you want to keep it very, very small and narrow because, like, there's an education process, especially in category development. Like, you're spending, you're, you're trying to spend as much time with them to sort of understand their problems and and to sort of educate them. And and they also become initial reference customers. They also become sort of like your, it becomes part of your customer development process as well, too. So, what you want to do is just like the most narrow and thin as possible because you're trying to find like the potential early adopters and the hardcore fans for what you're trying to do. And then over time, you're trying to, as you get your wedge into this market, like maybe it's like just five freakish customers, right? Like who just like are sort of super early adopters. But over time, the idea is you're sort of trying to expand that wedge, right? You know, so, like, you know, you get one, then you get sort of like 10 customers, then you get like, 100 customers it's about being systematic, right? And expand your wedge over time and also allowing you to go and figure out like, okay, we go out to these folks and we're like, okay, they're not the right folks for what we're building. Maybe you go sort of like expand your wedge a little bit more to go try out another smaller customer segment. And then over time, it's about getting the fanatics on board first. It's a movement. You have to think about almost like a religious movement or a cult. I have to probe a little bit deeper. You have brought up the concept of customer development, customer process development. What'd you call it? Well, there's category development, and then there's like just customer development process where just like you're trying to learn more about the customers and whether you're building the right thing for them. So, so I think like in the beginning, where like I assume when you're doing a lot of like, like by the way, like this positioning stuff is not stuff you do from day one, right? Like it's one of those things where like I think about sort of very, very sort of like specific stages of companies where like there's the what's your insight, right? Like what's this, you know. Do you understand the market? Do you understand the insight and what's going on over there? Then you're like, okay, then you come up with your hypothesis where like, I think these are the customers. I think this is what they're looking for. I think these are the problems. And that's actually when you get to sort of the customer development mode, right? Which is like, okay, now I think I know who they are. I have this hypothesis. So I'm going to build toward like, you know, sort of trying to figure out the product market fit. Can you speak a little bit more to finding product market fit? What are some strategies? I think like a big part of like product market fit, right? And by the way, it takes a long time. People always think like they have this idea just like, oh, like someone gets a product market fit in like two, three months. I'm like, no, it's just, I've never seen it happen faster than two or three years. Like it takes a lot of time because like, let's say, say you, you, de- you have some insight into the market. You have some insight into who potential customers are and what that problem is. Then once you sort of have, have that understanding and insight, then you're like, okay, now I need to sort of build toward it, right? Because that's my thesis. And you're building and building, you're building, getting feedback, feedback is good or bad, you go back, fix it, go back again, like there's a toggling between that, right? And, and as you're getting your insights changing as well, too, where I'm like, oh, I thought this, my vision is still right, but how I'm going to get my vision is sort of like, may not be the way, like, maybe I had to sort of build according to this direction. And so like, there's a little bit of back and forth. And then sort of over time, you know, in the beginning, you're just kind of pushing and pushing and pushing stuff out there, throwing stuff out there. And over time, like people are like, yes, this is actually what I want. And they're like, give me money. You're like, tell me where to pay. Right. And then you start seeing sort of like more pull from the market. And I actually think you have product market fit. Well, like, it's just hard to figure out, but like, it's, you'll know it when you see it, but like in the beginning, like it's just like, how can you be super systematic about the regular experimentation? Like knowing who your customers are, talking to them on a regular basis, building toward it, 
reiterating on that feedback. But like, I think people get like pivoting wrong where people are like, oh, this is hard. So I'm going to go do like this completely different business. Like that's like a very desperate, I very rarely have seen that happen. You always start with some deep insight where I'm like, I think this is where the world is going, right? Like, you know, like this is like the future. These are the challenges. These are the larger trends that are coming together. And these are the customers. And this is what they're facing. And we know they have to do this. Maybe there's some regulatory changes. Maybe there's going to be some like, there may be some generational, customer generational changes, like whatever it is, right? And so like, we know this is happening. So let's go and build according to that, right? Usually, hopefully, because you have some insight because you come from that industry or you've just researched the crap out of it, right? Like you, like you really, really know the industry. And you've, you've talked to like 50 people and you're like, yes, this is a real problem. That's, and, and so you, you've come up with this very unique insight on where the market's going and what the problem is, right? And why companies are mispositioned to sort of like to be able to sort of like deal with that that upcoming problem and so then you build toward it we're like okay great based on this stuff i'm building this and the customer development piece is like going out to them and going hey what do you think about this like does this make sense for you and in the beginning most of people like no i don't want to use this like you're a startup like yeah i don't see this as an issue and that could be good or bad feedback but in the beginning you're just trying to figure out like who are the early adopters, right? That recognize this because in every, you know, like you think about in the fortune 500, maybe like in every company, there's like probably out of fortune 500, maybe like 20 to maybe 30 companies are like forward thinking, going like, no, I see that this is a problem. We need to start investing in this. Like, how do you find those people? Or within these sort of like non innovative companies are still champions where it's like, who are these people that will, will say like, yes, I recognize if I don't do this and I don't implement some of these, you know, this technology, my company's dead or, or it's going to be like, so how do you find these like early sort of adopters and what I call like the, the early raving fans, right? I really like something that you said that I picked up on this, this idea of push and pull, because when I've heard about advice on the iterative process, right? It's commonly called is where you're iterating based on customer feedback. My initial question before you said that was, you know, where do you draw the line as to when I should be listening to the customer and when I shouldn't be? There's got to be a fine line there somewhere, right? And I do think this push and pull concept is a good indicator. It's a great, it's a great barometer where instead of me, like you're saying, me pushing the product as a company to you as a customer, now you're saying, hey, hey give me this, give me that, right? I, th- I thought that was a really interesting concept. I, I do want to ask and follow that up with what are some of the best practices on doing research that you've seen in your um, portfolio companies? Here's the thing, like I, I see people sort of like fall over on sort of like one side, right? They do like qualitative stuff where they just interview and talk to a lot of people. They, they do the surveys and ask stuff and that's all they do. But then they don't see sort of like, okay, you, once you've rolled a profit, like then there's like the quantitative side. And I see some people lean on the quantitative side where like they kind of watch what people are doing on your website and, and taking stats and doing the surveys, but they don't actually talk to customers. And you actually have to do sort of like both or potential customers or users where, because I think with the quantitative side, you get to see what really happens. And you can also find out where I'm like, oh, like, why are they dropping off here? Like, why are they clicking on here doing this? Or why does it say this? And, and I think when you're talking to customers, you sort of have a better understanding of just sort of, so the quantitative is like, what do they do, right? Like what ends up happening? What do they actually really do? The qualitative side 
and asking the questions like, okay, why are you doing this, right? Or like, what's driving what you're doing? Like, why did you do this? And so you almost have to put the two together. And that's how you should, like, that's how you get better insight, right? So, so it's kind of like focus groups, like focus groups help you understand the, the thought process, but you're like, a lot of people lie on focus groups. So that's why you can't believe polls, right? Like I'm going to vote for this person, but you don't, you're not really going to, right? Like, and so you kind of have to sort of like take, a, you know, the best entrepreneurs, the best startup founders are basically private, you know, sort of investigators. You're trying to use as many tactics and techniques to go and figure out what the truth is, or in this case, what the market truth is. I think that is like the quote of the episode. I mean, you've said a lot of amazing things, but the best entrepreneurs are the ones that do the investigative work. That is so key. And I do believe in that, that even myself, after you said that, I I feel like sometimes I don't do enough investigation into the customer base. It is a balance, right? Because I think there's some entrepreneurs, like they do too much, like they get into sort of the analysis paralysis and then they, and and that sometimes like gets in the way of just like, you do research and research and research and research, but you don't do anything, you don't build anything. And then there's like, I I think human beings and entrepreneurs and human beings are super extreme folks. So like you tend to sort of like, do one thing more than the other. And so there's I, like, it's, it's interesting. I have a bunch of entrepreneurs who are like analysis paralysis. So you can analyze this thing and just like, just like make a decision. Like you, like it's been like three weeks now. Like we've been talking about this for three weeks. I just make a freaking decision. And you have a bunch of other folks who just don't do any thinking at all. And just like they act and act. And then they, then they run into walls. Right. And, and I'm just like, what are you doing? Yes, I see that you're working super hard, but you're going nowhere. Like which direction are you going? Where just like, you're just, you're kind of digging and digging and digging, but there's literally no direction. Or you're building and building, you have no direction. I do want to end the interview on something you shared with me recently, Paul Graham's article on the manager versus the maker. And I think that's really pertinent to what we were just talking about, how entrepreneurs, so some of the best practices as, as entrepreneurs or business owners, right? Can you share a little bit about that methodology or, or the, the thinking behind manager versus maker? Yeah. So I think that's one of the challenges is when, for most startup founders, when they first start off, it's just like, they're basically just a maker, right? Like, and I would say typical Silicon Valley, they're usually just makers. And so makers is like a lot of deep work, you're building, coding, you don't like a lot of interrupted time, but over time, as you become much more successful, you have an organization built around you. And so then it becomes like manager time where like a lot of interactions, you have a team, you have a lot more customers now. And so it's just like, you just don't have as much time for like the deep work. And so, but you got to do both. Both are important. Right. And so how do you sort of like manage your calendar according to sort of like, I don't, what I do not think is a good idea. Just like what I find sometimes is that people just end up going into like makers end up have, just spending no time on ma- you know, sort of like maker time and all the time just managing. And then they're unhappy and they don't feel very productive. And also like there's in early stage companies still need to be doing some deep work. Right. And there's a bunch of other folks who are just like, they've moved too far into sort of managing side or other folks are just like, okay, you know what, this is what got me here now. So screw the management stuff. And this is way more common. I'm just going to build, you guys go figure this stuff out. And that's like, imagine that's like chaos and anarchy. Right. And, and by the way, they also get pissed off because you have a team and you're like, you're the CEO or you're the VP of product or whatever. And people come to you going like, Hey, I need this signed off. And, and it disrupts your sort of like, as a manager, you, you're coordinating, you're managing a team, saying the vision, communications, and and even just like sometimes it's just like as a manager, sometimes it's, just, it's a five minute conversation. But while you're doing like well, this, is what is disruptive for people? Where it's like I'm a maker, I'm spending time building this thing, and then somebody comes to you and just go, "Hey, I need five minutes of your time." Then like it takes more time. You're like, "Well, you answer the question," and then you have to sort of like rewire again, sort of get back into sort of like maker mode. And so what 
Paul Graham talks about. It's like understand sort of yourself, understand sort of like you need to do both as you scale your company. And so have like very discrete time in your calendar where like maybe mornings is all sort of like maker time and all afternoon is manager time or vice versa, right? But make sure that you have like a bulk of like, you know, three to four hours in each of them. So you're not disturbed and you can sort of like blow through these and just be more organized. And also to make your team aware of that, right? So they don't disturb you while you're in their your maker mode. That is key. And that's something that I've neglected until you brought it up uh, and shared that with me to really be conscious of how I block my time throughout the day and be respectful of not only other people's time, but my own time as well. All right. Any other uh, parting wisdom on positioning before we wrap up? No, I, I think that's enough. I feel like I kind of did sort of a very disorganized sort of like data dump on stuff. And, and I mean, there's a lot of nuance to everything I say, right? So this is why like, I, you know, in any conversation I have with a startup founder, like, I spend a lot of time like asking them questions about sort of like, where their business is at, what's going on, and also whether positioning is like really the right, you know, for are they at the right stage to be positioning, right? Any books resources that you recommend? Yeah, that's a great, great point. I, I think there's a, there's a great book, it's called, um, written by the guys, actually, uh, like Play Bigger, that's a great book. I recommend it, Play Bigger. And the other book I'd recommend, Category Creation. Category Creation, yes, who's by it by? Kanada, uh, K-E-N-N-A-D-A. Right, I'll include it in the, uh, in the description below. Yeah, those, those are good first starts. And you know, if people want to reach out to you, Marvin? Yeah, probably Twitter, like at Marvin, under, I think it's like at Marvin Liao. Um, and I'm going to give two recommendations. Another book, like it's a classic book, is called um, Positioning by like Al Rise and Trout. So R-I-E-S and then Trout, like old book, but I still think it's one of the best ones. And your Twitter, I just confirmed oh, yeah. it. It's just at Marvin yeah. Liao, A-R-V-I-N-L-I-A-O. And then um, the other book I recommend is like Different by uh, Young Mi Yoon, uh, Young Mi Moon. Um, so it's just called Different and the author's name is Moon, M-O-O-N. That book was very, very helpful as well too. So that's really about differentiation. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This was really a pleasure. Yeah, I hope it's helpful. And I, I hope everyone does well out there and hope it's useful for everyone. Thanks, Marvin. All right. Is your sales team spending too much time researching leads and accounts? We take over all the labor-intensive sales development tasks so your team can focus on building relationships and closing more deals. We don't just build lists. We take a strategic research-based approach to find your team qualified leads every day. Ready to start? Schedule your free consultation at taskdrive.com. That's T-A-S-K-D-R-I-V-E dot com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.